0: We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with L. Jones. When Halifax-based poet L. Jones started speaking out about issues in general, and about prisoner justice in particular over a decade ago, it was a much different political moment. Though there are long histories of prisoner justice organizing across the continent, particularly in directly impacted communities, there was less mainstream space at that point to name the harsh, unjust realities of policing and prisons, and to name the white supremacy and settler colonialism built into them. Jones initially thought she was just stating the obvious by pointing these things out, but even more so than today, these truths were met by aggressive denial from many. Thanks to Black Lives Matter and to other important organizing emerging in large part from Black and Indigenous contexts, today it is at least somewhat harder to deny these realities. More people are willing to talk about how dehumanizing and awful prisons are. More people are willing to recognize the ways in which Black people in Canada are vastly overrepresented in prison and in all stages of the criminal justice system. While Jones started out by speaking publicly using her platform as a poet, her relationship to prisoner justice issues quickly evolved. Over the years, it has taken the form of the Black Power Hour, an important prisoner-led project that is part radio show and part community organization. When it started, she was involved in another radio show, also on CKDU in Halifax. She was also by that point Poet Laureate of Halifax, and her words were spreading more widely. A prisoner who had encountered an interview with her where she talked about prisoner justice got in touch and wanted to share his poetry on the radio, so she had him call into the show. Other prisoners heard that and got interested as well, and eventually it became a regular thing. This original show was not actually meant to focus on prisoners, so by request of the prisoners themselves, who by this point she was getting to know, they started a new show, Black Power Hour, focused on people in prison and on black history and other black content. Black Power Hour grew from there. It continues to be a radio show driven by the interests of folks inside, and sometimes including content from them, and it is also a community organization, again, one that is directed by people who are in prison. They do court support work for people, they engage in collective journalism projects about what's happening in jails, led by people on the inside, they organize political campaigns related to things like the conditions in prisons, and they engage in campaigns around wrongful convictions and miscarriages of justice, particularly for African Nova Scotian prisoners. Their most visible such campaign has been against the deportation of Abdul Abdi, which has reached the national media and which is still ongoing. She talks about that campaign and others in the interview. Today, the political moment is quite different than when Jones first started speaking out about prisoner justice issues. The mainstream remains hostile, of course, but a lot more people are willing to speak the radical truth about police and prisons, at least on social media. Jones recognizes the power and importance of social media, it's done a lot to drive the campaign in support of Abdul Abdi, for instance, but she is also wary of a political culture that often mistakes tweeting for organizing. The woke industrial complex, she calls it. We live in an environment that makes it hard to know anything about histories of struggle, or about how to actually do the hard, unglamorous work of organizing for change, but she suggests that this work is exactly what more people need to be doing. She recommends starting out by getting involved with organizations that already do good work, even if it's not quite what you want to be doing, in order to learn how to do it. She recommends finding grassroots people already working on an issue and supporting them, rather than trying to start from scratch. And, similar to what she tries to enact via the Black Power Hour, she recommends a political practice that is rigorously accountable to the people who are most directly affected by the experiences in question. I speak with Jones about prisoner justice, about the Black Power Hour, and about organizing.
1: My name is Al Jones. I'm a community advocate. And an educator and a poet living in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I'm also a co-founder of Black Power Hour, BPH, which is a radio show and organization co-founded with incarcerated people. There's a radio show component where we share news, current issues, people in prison can call in, we meet the requests for music. But also beyond the radio show, it's a community organization. So we provide court support, We try to work towards justice, particularly for African Nova Scotians. So in terms of addressing wrongful convictions and miscarriages of justice, we've done different campaigns around things like phone costs. We do a collective journalism project where we do stories about what's happening inside the jails. And most importantly, it's a collective with prisoners. So it's run from the inside. We take direction from those who run the show from the inside. We live in a kind of like woke era now where everybody's at least claiming a kind of consciousness, which wasn't the case 10 years ago. Obviously, there was lots of activism. So I was very much surrounded by activists. But this kind of mass idea of wokeness wasn't really around. And that's important because when I was doing like politically based poetry at the time, it was quite controversial. People banned me. People were very upset with what I was saying because I was doing poems about things like policing in prisons and people were just not feeling it. I was talking about white people or white supremacy rather. And so I wasn't at that time accepted. I was very ostracized for that, as were the other people that were doing this. And the advantage of that was that people that were standing up and speaking were serious and were usually involved in actual work. So there wasn't this kind of like, I can tweet it and then turn my back and then I just tweeted it performance. Like If you were going to talk about things, you were likely doing things at the time, I think. So there was perhaps more ability to get into organizing work and be on the ground. This, I guess, sounds odd because I ended up being a poet laureate. But when I started doing poetry, I wasn't really accepted anywhere. So the people that would have me to perform were basically other marginalized groups. So I would do a lot of work just like standing on the street at rallies, and that's where I was performing. And so as I was doing that, I would, of course, run into people's stories. People would tell me stuff, you know, if you I would do a poem about women being abused, then people would tell you more about their own stories. And a lot of those stories also involved incarceration, because there's a lot of crossover between those groups, obviously being within the Black community. I would do youth work, you would experience your youth ending up being incarcerated, the people you're working with. So on all these different levels, I was very much aware of incarceration, and I eventually got invited in to do poetry, and through that connected with more people on the inside. So it was a kind of gradual process, both through speaking about it and then having to put my money where my mouth is in the sense of I always felt that if I was going to speak about something, I had to be able to say, but yes, I'm trying my best as well. So really through poetry and through arts, I guess that's where I became involved Particularly when I did become Poet Laureate, I gave an interview talking about wanting to encourage people in prison to write poetry. And I was contacted by a young man at that point who was in prison and wanted to share his poetry with me. And we had built up a friendship from that. And he ended up sharing a lot of his poetry on the radio. And that through the radio connected to a lot of people inside that could hear my voice and were listening. And then because that was the voice coming into the jail and we were talking about issues that were relevant to them and they could hear that I was talking about prison rights and I was talking about not having stigma around prison and I was helping people. So those people would reach to me and that's kind of how a lot of the community grew. It really was from a grassroots sort of somebody saying, oh, I heard you on the radio, so can you help me get a lawyer? Or somebody's parent reaching out to me and saying, oh, my son needs help or my daughter needs this. So it it really just grew organically from that. The radio show is really the moment because that became a personal relationship because people were calling, you know, and they would be talking to you and then you would hear their stories, and then they would tell you, you know, like I have asthma and I went to health and they didn't send me to the doctor and I almost died. Like you would hear those stories. And as you hear those things, how can you not react to them? How can you not speak about them? How can you not see the injustice? So I think the radio show is what really built the personal relationships where it really started as community work was certainly through the radio show to the relationship building.
0: How did you originally decide that a radio show was a project that you wanted to put your energy into?
1: That really came from the prisoners. So this is what I mean by everything was organic. I was actually part of another radio show. And it was when this young man had contacted me and said, oh, he wanted to read poetry. I was like, yeah, just call on the radio and read it. And then people heard him reading. So then they would call in and read stuff. And then they sort of made it into a prison radio show. But because that wasn't actually my show, we ended up having to split off and create BPH as a show that was actually dedicated to people in prison. And that's when BPH started. And that was by the request of a prisoner who wanted to hear more Black history and Black-related material as well. So it had two goals in that sense. And of course, when you're doing something dedicated to prisoners, that's challenging for people, especially a space that wasn't dedicated to like policing people in prison. The point of contention has always been the music that we play a big part of the show is that people can request music and that's been very significant to us because we recognize that if you're in prison, you don't have the chance to request anything. You're dependent. You have no freedom. So we feel that the act of being able to say, I want this song and having it played for you is a really important one. You're not on the outside where you can just pull up anything on YouTube. So we've really stuck to playing those songs, whether or not we ourselves like them, we felt that it's very important and it's been an important piece of building the space for people where they feel that they have agency or some kind of connection. And of course, politically, it makes sense because even if the song itself, people might be like, oh, that song's, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I like that material. But in between the songs, we're talking about political stuff, we're giving news about like prison, we been giving legal news. So people are hearing that stuff and they're sitting through it to hear the next song. So it's a way of giving people that information. But that was very contentious. People would complain about like the N-word in the music or a big moment we had as we played a Young Buck song start a riot after the Philando Castile shooting and another programmer got very upset and tried to police how black people were speaking about our anger. So we had to work out that. But it was not really about the music. I think it's very much about people's discomfort with people in prison. And if you're not forcing them to be shamed, when you start approaching people as equals, I think that's very, very uncomfortable for people. The idea that you're not somehow expecting them to be abject because they're in prison. I think that was really what it was. We've been doing it quite a while now, so anybody who, I guess, has objections has probably got over it or gone away, and the people that need to know about the show know about it. But I think it does show you a lot about how difficult it is to get prisoner testimony out there, because people want to police the languages it's said in. If you seem insufficiently remorseful, if you aren't, you know, upset that you were selling drugs or whatever, then people don't want to listen to you. And we, as a show, never put in those kind of requirements. We wanted people to speak as they wanted to speak, and they always have.
0: When you have prisoners speaking on the show or you read things that they've written, what kinds of things are they eager to talk about?
1: It's anything. I mean, right now we're not having a lot of call-ins with their own material. They request the topics. So, for example, this week they've requested social media and its effects on the brain. You know, does it actually make people crueler? That's a the topic they've requested. We often do requests on news. Last week they wanted to talk about the FBI investigation of rap records. So it can be stuff like that. But when it's their own work, It depends. I mean, a lot of people will talk about their life story. So there's been some really powerful work about how people got where they are. One of the things I kind of noticed is if you didn't police people, so their first piece might be something about, you know, I cook up the crack or whatever. And if you're like, oh, my God, how could you say that? Like you're in jail and you're talking about drugs. Then that person's voice is stifled. They would do that piece. And then they might come back in a couple of weeks and have a piece about how they don't want to see their younger brother to see them doing that and how they want to make a change. So they would spontaneously reflect upon their own words. We didn't need to police them. So yeah, sometimes you get stuff that's very much in that kind of like gangster rap vein, but you also get really powerful stuff from people about growing up without fathers or, you know, having to support their families or being in foster care or struggling with the idea of being a man. You get that material as well. So there's not one thing they talk about, and we certainly don't demand that they only talk about approved things. I think people would be surprised at the amount of reflection that people take. In fact, people take far more responsibility than they should for being in jail. People are much more likely to blame themselves than to recognize the role that, you know, capitalism, white supremacy, the prison industrial complex have played in their lives. They're much less likely to blame those things and blame themselves.
0: Whether it's for the show or for campaign work, what are the logistics like in terms of working with people on the inside?
1: Well, we have tremendous phone costs. It costs between, depending on where a person is, one twenty-five and $7 a call, not counting the extra fees. So it costs a lot financially. Visiting people, obviously. But it's organic in a real sense, stuff will come up. So when we did the phone petition, it was because they're in construction at the local jail at Burnside, and then they shifted people that were on the show to the new jail in pic which is two hours away, which meant they had these long distance costs on phone. So they did a petition, and that renewed some news interest in the phone costs. When there was deaths in custody, we ended up doing a journalism project where they were speaking about like, experiencing deaths in custody, so what it was like being in the cell when somebody else has died in custody. A lot of those pieces, I'll sort of write, or they'll write, or they'll give me the material to write, or they'll write it down and then call me, and then I record it off the phone and transcribe it. So it's collected that way. When the Senate Human Rights Committee did testimony, I had testimony from people inside. So there's a lot of back and forth. It really is about relationship building, it's about community building. So once you build that relationship with people, once there's a relationship of trust, then they come to you on different things. Relationship work is the true solidarity work. You have to be on the ground. You have to be listening to people. You have to be letting them teach you what is needed. Because people have generously shared with me, that's why you know what's happening and what the injustices are and what the conditions are. And then I'm able to write about it or write a poem or talk about it. And then people go, oh, you're such a great advocate. But the people that are advocating are the people inside who are running those risks to get those stories out.
0: Tell listeners in more detail about a couple of the campaigns that have happened through Black Power Hour.
1: In the time that I've been involved in this, there's three black men I've worked with that I believe are wrongfully convicted or at least convicted of things that were not the crime they committed. In two of the cases, there was successful appeals. The first was actually the young guy that reached out to me that I was talking about when he had poetry back when I first became poet laureate. He was convicted of murder and I spoke about his case a lot and finally I was speaking in the classroom and it was actually the daughter of a wrongful conviction lawyer heard me and reached out to her father and he took the case for free and that appeal was successful. In another case, he'd been in jail for 16 years in prison on a life sentence for a murder. I was able to connect to a wrongful conviction lawyer that was on a panel with me. I was able to connect him to this person. He also won his appeal. And the founder of our radio show, Randy Riley. So Randy Riley was in jail actually five years waiting for trial. And that was around the problems that people have getting defense lawyers. During that time, his mother died. His cousin was killed, who's his best friend. He lost contact with his children for a period of time, almost stabbed to death in prison. This is while you're innocent and awaiting trial. And then when he went to trial, somebody else confessed on the stand, the co-defendant who had already been convicted. He said, I did it. And very coherent story explained everything. They had no evidence on Randy. Like there was nothing. Yet the jury convicted him of second degree murder, which didn't fit the facts of the case. So literally convicted him because he was black. It was an all white jury. So, again, somebody else confessed to this crime on the stand, yet an all white jury convicted a black man did not feel that that was reasonable doubt with no forensic evidence at all. So this is the kind of stuff we're speaking about. And now, you know, you have to get an appeal. You have to hope that appeal is heard. And while that happens, he goes to maximum security prison. And this is what our justice system is. And there has been to this day, little outrage about this, which is disappointing. You know, we're trying to get people to see, but when it's somebody that's on trial, people think they wouldn't be there if they wouldn't have done something. That's so hard to shift from people. They wouldn't be there if they didn't have a reason to be there. And the understanding that no people are there all the time, that did nothing, that other people are confessing to and are now condemned to life in prison. Look at these numbers. 2% of the population in Nova Scotia is black. 14% of the prison is black. 15% of people on remand are Black. Our federal population, 1.4% of the region is Black, and 11.4% of the federal prison is Black. That's 10 times over-incarcerated. To give you some context for that, in the states, 12% of the population is Black, and 33% of the prison is Black, and we consider that a crisis of mass incarceration. We're 10 times over-incarcerated. So we're really trying to push around that. But it's not easy, right? Like, trying to shift the whole system, And, you know, something that we have to push for people to understand that those numbers don't reflect Black criminality, they reflect miscarriages of justice. With Abdul Abdi, this story was the culmination of everything about anti-Black racism in Canada. So Abdul Abdi was brought as a child refugee from Somalia. He was apprehended by the state within a year of arriving in Nova Scotia. There was no translators offered, so to this day the family still doesn't really know why their kids were taken, him and his sister Fatuma were taken. Abdul was bounced to 31 different homes, meaning also law group homes, youth facilities, all kinds of different facilities in the time that he was in the care of the state. They never got his citizenship for him, even though he was in their care. So they denied him the right to even have rights, as his lawyer Ben Perryman says. And then as happens with many, in fact, the majority of children in the foster care system experienced crossover, which is when kids cross over from the foster care system into the criminal system, partly because when you're in the care system, the police become your parents, as Adil said, right? So if you miss curfew, it's not your parents telling you. People will call the police. We have all these encounters with the law. So he's convicted of a violent crime an assault with a weapon. And of course, this triggers a deportation hearing. His cellmate reached out to me and was very worried about what Abdul was experiencing about deportation. And he put Abdul on the phone to me back in November or whenever, and then Abdul was telling me his story. From there, I went to Desmond Cole, and Desmond had Ben Perryman, the lawyer, on his radio show, and then that story quite quickly exploded and became this national news story. That had led to, we ended up at the National Black Summit in Toronto, where the Minister of Immigration, Ahmed Hussein was speaking, and Desmond Cole and I did an intervention around that, questioning him about Abdul and demanding that he give an amnesty to child refugees who didn't have citizenship. And people at that summit were very, very upset with us. They felt that we were sort of interrupting the celebratory atmosphere, and we got quite heavily policed about that. Then Abdul was actually taken into custody in January, and he was released from prison. He was in solitary confinement. Nobody could reach him. And that was when the story blew up, really caused by Black Twitter that really jumped in and advocated. And the reason why Black Twitter was so invested in the story is we could see how all of these, this is the youth justice system, it's the immigration system, it's the child welfare system, the criminal justice system, how they all come together in anti-Black ways. And in the person of Abdul Abdi, all of this anti-Blackness is just represented. So I think that was why Black Canada really felt this injustice and, and really went hard on that. And then eventually the national news picked that up. So that advocacy was about him getting out of jail. Then it was about the case being heard in federal court. A lot of that advocacy was really just pushing the story. But also, for example, his sister Fatuma, when Justin Trudeau was in Halifax, she went and confronted Trudeau. So we stood with her as she went to Trudeau's town hall and asked him very directly, you know, what about my brother? Which was this moment of incredible courage. This is one of the things that I think really sparked national interest, the bravery of his sister Fatuma. So these are just some of the issues that come up. And very much come up through the work of, again, the people that are most affected. So not through my work, but his cellmate sitting in jail, facing his own parole hearing and seeing his distress and saying somebody needs to do something and reaching out and starting that ball rolling. You know, Fatuma standing up in front of the country and asking Trudeau to his face. These are the moments of bravery that really exist. You know, the people in prison that tell me stuff and then get interrogated or, you know, risking put in segregation to tell me these things. Because they believe that people knowing about them will bring further justice. So it's always from them. It's always from the people in prison. All I can do is facilitate those voices. So use what platform I have to write about it or to speak about it. But none of that exists without their own advocacy. They are the advocates.
0: Talk more about the importance you see in going beyond just speaking out about prisoner justice or other issues.
1: I think the challenge of this era is that there's a lot of people that are aware of things, but there's not as many people, I don't think, on the ground doing the organization work. A lot of people want to talk about things, but when it comes time to, like, organizing to do things, there's not the people you need. And I think that's always the struggle, mobilization versus organization. It's very easy to get people out to tweet something. And I'm not denying the power of Twitter. I mean, Abdul was the power of Twitter, right? Black Twitter really pushed up. Twitter has a power. But we also have to organize. And of course, if we weren't organized, if we hadn't been doing work in the prisons before that I've never heard from adults, you have to do the groundwork to even hear the stories. That's how you hear them in the first place. And I think that piece is missing from a lot of the advocacy today. And I think a lot of people who run organizations will tell you that. And I think this is a deliberate neoliberal strategy that we're very much denied knowledge of what came before Our radical histories tend to be taken from us, whether that's the true history of civil rights, where we now believe that Martin Luther King was just, you know, this charismatic person who was just inspiration, you know, and we don't know anything about the organizing work. So I think that's a challenge, that every generation reapproaches these things as though those questions and struggles weren't worked out, and that's a deliberate strategy. And then, of course, the ability of everything to be made into consumers. So, like, let's sell Black Lives Matter t-shirts, you know, but let's not do the organizing our communities. Like, what does it mean to organize against the police? That's not just holding rallies. It also means we have to come up with the alternatives to policing. And to do that, how do we build relationships in our communities about holding each other accountable? How do we begin to take care of our own communities because we haven't been allowed to and we haven't been allowed that self-determination? With prison work, yeah, like, how do we even build fundamental relationships with people inside prisons? There's that famous quote, you know, if you're here to help me, then you're wasting my time. But if you believe your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. And I think a lot of what also happens is people are like, oh, prisons, I would love to go into a prison and write poetry with people. But is that helping knock the prison down? Is that helping end prison expansion? When they're spending millions of dollars on renovating the prison, What have we done to oppose that? What have we done to suggest that money could have been used for beds in therapy and for housing? And if we're not doing that work, then how much does it mean if we're going in and doing the program? These are questions I ask myself constantly because I think we're in the middle of a woke industrial complex, I'm calling it, right? And so everybody's suddenly interested in these things. But I think there's a very deliberate kind of thing that happens where you're encouraged to like tweet about it and do it in these ways but not encouraged to know how to organize in your own communities. And to be clear, I'm not blaming people for this. I'm saying people don't know how to get started. How do you begin to become involved in organizations, especially when you're young and you just don't know where to go? If I hadn't had poetry, people wouldn't have been approaching me. So I would still thought that prisons were jacked up, but would I have ever been in public in ways that people would say, oh, you should come do this?
0: And what would your advice be for someone who's listening who doesn't know quite how to make that transition to on-the-ground organizing?
1: There are all those people on the ground that's becoming involved in communities. You find the people that are doing that work and then it's contributing to that. Elizabeth Fry, for example, they have a fully thought out system on how they advocate for women and whether you're interested in advocating for women or not, that system is very useful. So if you are involved in that organization, you're going to see those strategies, you're going to learn them, and then you can use them for the work that you want to do. That might be work outside of Elizabeth Fry, but I think it's important like, getting involved just in any kind of organization that teaches us how to do this work, and then you can go into your own community and do the work in ways that might adapt to that community. But I think if you don't have experience of being part of an organization and seeing how you have to strategize and how people do this work and learning those things from elders, I think it's very difficult to get started. Black women are out here doing this work all the time. We've been doing this work. And I guarantee you, whatever community that you're in, there's a black woman that's running some breakfast program or running a program for you. And she's doing it on no money and with no recognition. And what you need to do is not to jump in and then be like, I'm going to do this thing. And then you're white and you can get like all these resources and basically cut the black woman out. It's like, how can I support her in doing the work she's doing? You can find those people. For myself, I've always done what's asked of me. It's just people ask, and then I had to figure out how to do So if I need to learn immigration law, that's what I need to do. If I need to learn what the process of complaints to the public prosecution office is, I'm going to learn that, right? You have to just be able to do what you're asked to do. And you learn very quickly on the ground. I feel like I have worked on tons of different issues, but it's because when people ask me, I've shown up. And that might just be to drive or to do a poem or to stack chairs, right? Like that is all organizing work. It doesn't mean that you have to be in the media. It's not glamorous work. Organizing work is actually 99%. Like who's putting the chairs up? Who's painting the banner? Who's handing out the leaflets? Who's making the coffee? That is organizing work. And I think women and particularly indigenous women, black women, racialized women have always done this work in our communities. But where you get started is I think doing anything. Like if someone's holding a protest and you come and help, you know, back the chairs and you'll meet people there and then people are going to talk to you and you'll find out and you'll find your way through it but it's just showing up
0: and what does committing to these struggles over the longer term look like particularly when it comes to prisoner justice
1: in the end it really is about walking step by step with people not backing away we can't back off when it's hard and be like oh i'm really tired now this is too hard you have to be in it for the long haul you absolutely have to commit you can always turn and walk away and they can't so you have to be there that means picking up the phone. It means even when you might be like irritated, like i the time at work, you know, you still have to do your best or explain what your limits are and explain very clearly how you're available because they're in such a vulnerable situation. You have this power where you're on the outside. You really have to, I think, make those strong commitments and follow through on those commitments. If you say you're going to be in court, you better be in court. If you say you're visiting, you better visit. If you say you're putting money on the phone, you better do it. And so it teaches you to keep those commitments and keep those words. And that in its turn, I think, is a very revolutionary thing that teaches you solidarity in very deep ways that you then can play out in other ways. So I've been very grateful to those relationships because they hold you accountable as an activist. You know, they are the people that are at the center of this. We are just the support, all of us. We have to walk those paths with people. We have to be willing to put those commitments on the line. And it's a hard thing. You know, we fail a lot and that's okay. And I think as advocates, we should speak about that. But what we always try to do is go back to the people in prison and make sure we're accountable to them, make sure they're leading this work and that we're doing what we can to support whatever it is.
0: You have been listening to my interview with poet and organizer Elle Jones about her involvement in prisoner justice issues via the Black Power Hour, a radio show on CKDU in Halifax and a community organization. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.